The climate change, the even gender identity, the social unrest maybe around Black Lives Matter and other such things, I think those all get to what I call an existential threat mindset, which is if we think the world is like our environment is under some sort of existential threat and makes us feel anxiety, and it feels like there's an existential threat, there's a bunch of them going around. You know, we grew up in in high school and junior high and all that stuff under the the kind of threat of terrorism because of 9-11. But was I really concerned about terrorism? No. Because it wasn't plastered on your phone day to day. Exactly. So, I mean, someone was. It was an existential threat, but it wasn't in my world. I was able to compartmentalize it. And I think that's something that we can't do anymore as well. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend, Brad Stolberg. What's going on, Brad? Hey, Steve. Um, Not so much. Just another Wednesday, another day recording with you. We've got an important episode. Um, The topic is somewhat sensitive and quite disconcerting. We're going to be talking today about some recent data released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on the state of mental health in teenagers in America. And um, it is not a good state right now. It is not. And before we get into that, just a reminder that we stay ad-free on this podcast on purpose. It's so that we can give you views that are evidence-based, research-backed, and like not swayed by what will give us more finances. And in order to do that, what we've set up is a Patreon where you can join, be a part of our monthly book clubs, our quarterly mastermind Zoom group discussions. You can get a, you get an advanced copy of our newest or forthcoming book. And all sorts of great, you know, stuff as well, behind the scenes looks, all sorts of good stuff. So if you'd like to support us, head on over to patreon.com slash the growth equation. The other way you can support us is buy our books. That's where our best thinking is. That's what allows us to do everything else we do, both on this podcast, social media, a newsletter, everywhere else you see us is the success of our books. So check out uh, do Hard Things, my latest, and then The Practice of Groundedness, Brad's latest. Available in hardcover ebook and audio. So check out those books. Look at our Patreon page if you want the deep dive. Uh, it's a really good value. And with that, we'll, uh, we'll jump into today's topic. So let me rattle off some statistics here, Steve, and you can fill in any gaps that I miss. But the uh, the CDC just released the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which is more or less the gold standard for looking at high school, middle school age behavior and mental health. And the period of this last survey data was the decade from 2011 to 2021. So this is right after the financial crisis of 2008, right into what we'll call mid-COVID. And um, 
It was ugly, man. The survey said that the share of teenage girls who experience quote unquote persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness increased from 36% to 57%. The highest jump was during the pandemic. The share of girls who said they contemplated suicide increased 50% in the last decade. For boys, there was another substantial increase, though it was a little bit smaller. It's particularly disconcerting for those that identified as LGBTQ. Compared with heterosexual teams, they're far more likely to experience poor mental health, homelessness, to be threatened or injured by a weapon inside of school, to miss school for safety, to be bullied, to be raped, and almost three times more likely than heterosexual teams to have misused a prescription opioid. Three times more likely to have considered suicide, made a suicide plan, or attempted suicide, and seven times more likely to have been injured in a suicide attempt. So this is really disconcerting. I want to go back to some of those kind of top-line numbers. If you are a teenage girl, well, let me reframe. If you have a group of 10 teenage girls, 57% of those 10 have persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. Two of those 10 have likely seriously contemplated suicide, and one of those 10 has attempted suicide. And if it's a group of 10 LGBTQ teenagers, those numbers nearly double or triple. So this isn't one in a hundred, not that that's not serious. It's not one in a thousand. This is like the kids in your neighborhood, multiple kids in a classroom. Uh, When I saw this, my first thought is this is a true public health emergency and we'll get into how this data is measured and what are some of the explanatory factors. But I think at first it's just worth like really pausing and, and considering this isn't someone else over there. This is happening in all of our communities, likely with many people that we know. Yeah, it paints a very not pretty picture. And, and the only thing I'd add to that data is, well, I haven't looked at all the data everywhere, but it seems like, at least according to a couple of the studies that I found on recently, is you're seeing similar trends, at least in other Western countries like the UK. Got it. So it's not, although most of the data we have recently comes out of the US, for instance, UK teen, I was looking at some data that showed UK teen self-harm since 2012 has had a about a hundred percent increase in both boys and girls. So you're you're seeing similar issues at least across the pond as well. And I want to come right to that issue of suicidality, suicidal ideation, and self-harm. Because I actually think that unfortunately it kind of explains away the most dismissive narrative which is, of course, teenage girls report being unhappy and sad. They're teenage girls. Being a teenage girl is really hard. And perhaps we're just more open to sharing our feelings and there's more acceptance around mental health language. So therefore, nothing's really changed because teenage girls have always been sad and now we just have language and ways for them to tell us that they're sad. And 
the stark increase in suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, suicide injury, to me, unfortunately, dismisses that narrative. If there was no increase in those kind of self-harm behaviors, then sure, maybe one could argue that this is really just about what's become permissible to talk about. But this isn't just talk, this is seen in actions. And um, that's how like, I immediately went to, oh, this is probably pretty real across the board. Now, could some of the you know more than 50% of girls be explained by the fact that we talk more about mental health? Yes, but there's definitely a real, a real rise in true distress and pain as evidenced by those self-harm um, statistics. Yeah, that's a good point. And then another point to kind of set the stage that I've seen on this is a lot of it, a lot of the coverage has kind of gone to the easy answer, which is, okay, why is this happening? And looked at COVID and shutdowns of schools and lockdowns and all that stuff. And that's almost certainly, you know, accelerant or contributing factor. But if you look at uh, most of the data, it shows that this trend was increasing before COVID. So if you look at the data in 2019, you're seeing alarming rises. And essentially, again, it varies a little bit, but if you look at the trends, is somewhere around 2012-ish, we start to see a, a increase, gradual increase in all of these, you know, essentially bad, you know, depressive, self-harm, et cetera, um, numbers. So it's not that... COVID caused this. And in fact, if you look at the data on that persistent sadness, hopelessness, there was a sharp increase in 2019 and then, you know, still increased to 2021, but not as sharp from, let's say, 2017 to 2019. So it's not just, hey, let's, let's say it's COVID, lockdowns, isolation, all that stuff that certainly contributes, but it isn't the fire that seem to ignite this trend. Correct. So as we dive into potential explanatory um, feces, give us the benefit of the doubt here, right? These are tough topics to talk about. We're doing this in good faith. We're not trying to offend anyone. That's the last thing we're trying to do. Um, we've both ourselves experienced bouts of mental illness. Like, So I just want to say we might make a mistake we might say something that's not perfect. So hang with us, give us the benefit of the doubt. Based on what I've seen and what I've read and, and kind of how I've thought about this, I think there are three driving forces and then a whole bunch of others at the periphery going back to that 2011-2012 time period that have just been escalating. The first is the ubiquity of social media and more and more young kids having smartphones that have social media apps. The second thing is the culture war, and particularly on the right, the really leaning hard into more traditional values again around homosexuality, around gender identity, and that just becoming something that is kind of plastered across the airways whether it's on the internet, whether it's on TV, whether it's on the radio. And then the third thing that is contributing perhaps also in the cultural discourse, and I think it's safe to say that this is more driven by the left, is a leaning into 
fusing identity with challenges and therefore wanting to have guardrails and things that protect you from those challenges and, and really kind of merging. To me, this is the person whose social media bio lists the four chronic conditions they have. Not that there's anything entirely wrong with that, but the more that you merge identity with a challenge, the more that it's going to be hard to shed that challenge because you've now identified with it. I, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to, I'm going to punt the culpability. I'll just say that Derek Thompson, who's a writer that I love and who I tend to agree with, he points out that it doesn't mean that the left and right, like those two driving forces are equal. One seems to be a lot more severe. If you put yourself in the the mind of a 13-year-old gay, lesbian, queer kid, I mean, you're probably a lot more upset by Ron DeSantis and the right platform than you are by like perhaps over-identifying with, with challenges. And yet they're, they're likely both driving forces because the discourse, like just if you zoom out and you, you span the entire national discourse, this is such a part of it now. Oh, man. Okay, that's a lot to chew on, Brad. So, do you, I, I'm, I, do, do you think I'm missing any? Like, let's throw out. So, you throw out COVID. I think another well, offender is climate change. Well, I think I think all of these things come in together. So, let me try and I'm just going to throw a bunch at the wall, and then maybe we can sort through this. Okay. So, the climate change, the even gender identity, the the um, social unrest, maybe around Black Lives Matter and other such things. Like, I think those all get to what I call an existential threat mindset, which is what we know, and there's lots of research on this, but if we think the world is like our environment is under some sort of existential threat and makes us feel anxiety, and it makes sense why that that occurs. And I think what we've seen more recently is that things that are are real, maybe significant problems but we take them on the chin more personally. And it feels like there's an existential threat. There's a bunch of them going around more than in the previous social media. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take it back to our childhood. It's like, you know, we grew up in, in high school and junior high and all that stuff under the, the kind of threat of terrorism, right? Because of 9-11. But was I really concerned about terrorism? No. Like, because it wasn't plastered on your phone day to day. Exactly. So, I mean, someone was. It was an existential threat, but it wasn't in my world. I was able to compartmentalize it. And I think that's something that we can't do anymore as well. So I, I, I think that's one that kind of comes into that social media platform, everything. Um, the, I'm not sure there's much to add. I mean, I mean, yes, we'll talk for more than eight minutes here, but I, I think you just completely hit the nail on the head, and, which is that social media in, we'll just broadly expand from social media to the attention economy. Yes. So that includes a political candidate like Donald Trump, who's very different than Mitt Romney because his whole candidacy is demanding attention. That includes how the news cycle operates on both Fox News and MSNBC. And it includes what kind of tweets and internet articles are going to go viral we have a propensity to pay attention to things that are really gruesome. That's just how we evolved. We need to know that the shitty things are happening so we can, we can avoid them. And 
in a world where attention is the most important currency, people have figured out how to hack our brains by continuously pointing and making a big deal out of the bad, making things tribal. Um, and if you're a young kid that's just growing up in a world that's saturated by this abhorrent negativity bias, and you don't necessarily have the coping skills because you're a young kid, of course it's going to affect your psyche. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. So if we if we think this existential threat combined with social media, and that also includes like the comparison game and all that stuff that goes on as well, the attention economy. But then I think you you said the key word there, which is cope. And I think that's the other part of the equation you're getting at with some of these, the latter two things that you said there, which is, well, wh- how do we cope with existential threats? Well, we attach to things to make us feel more grounded, quote unquote, or like significant. Part of that attachment is like firming up our identity around certain things. So it makes sense why we would over-identify with the challenges in our space or even over-identify with the groups or the affiliations, right? That gives us some sort of significance um, as well. And I think that's what what you see. Again, I'm going to try and be as neutral as possible here, but I think that's what you see from both sides of the political aisle, whether it's attaching to, um, I don't know, a certain disability, making certain yeah. disabilities an outsized driver of how you identify. It, exactly. That's that's what it is. Like, and that's a coping mechanism, or not entirely, but like I think that's and there's research behind this that shows when we feel existential threat, it's like our sense of self is kind of fragmented. So what do we do? We try and make it secure. Um the other part of that with coping is also that group part is when we feel fragmented, what do we do? We try and attach ourselves to some sort of group and over, almost like over-identify with the group. And then the last part I'd say as well with this kind of soothing coping, which gets into one of the points you, you, you talked about is if we don't aren't equipped with the right coping mech, like styles or tools, what do we do? We kind of default towards ones that work in the short term, but aren't very good in the long term. And this gets to this idea of um, Jonathan Heights and the the coddling of the American mind, which is instead of using, like being taught, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy approach to like handling challenges, what do we do? We default towards like safetyism or bulldozer parenting or like avoidance type coping mechanisms that alleviate the, the the anxiety in the short term, but make things worse over the long term. Yes. So, um, okay. I think that that's 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 a hundred percent right. And avoidance, I think, is also a part of that, where like you just avoid distress, and and to that's kind of like what these microaggression traumas are: is they're they're trying to teach people to avoid distress instead of feel it. There was a new study that was published, we linked to this in our newsletter two weeks ago, that actually showed that microaggressions cause more psychic distress in the people that they're trying to protect because it shifts the locus of their identity to that thing. So instead of just saying, hey, we're going to talk about um, something really like potentially distressing, we're going to talk about slavery, we're going to talk about rape, we're going to talk about... Um, 
We're going to talk about discrimination based on sexuality. If you do a trigger warning, well, then what you're basically saying is, hey, 19-year-old, this is such a hard topic for you to even think about hearing because you went through it and it's bad, bad, bad. And that just compounds. And, and, and again, there's research to show that the students that suffer the most from those, these, these trigger warnings are those that often they are, they are supposed to per, protect. To be fair, the study found at the top line, they actually do nothing but maybe they lean towards causing a little bit more harm than, than good. And it's not the kind of harm that people think, which is like free speech is going away. I'm not going to be able to say anything. No, it's actually harming the people that it's, it's meant to protect. Um, I, I do think it's worth pointing out that, and then we can maybe get to like how we think about potential solutions. Two other things. Number one is the parents, instead of being present for their kids to realize these things and hold space and help their kids work things out, are addicted to their own Instagram and Facebook pages. So when your kid comes to you and in any, any parent of a young kid knows, like generally this stuff has to come up over time and the kid has to drive it. You can't like ask a kid, are you okay? What you need to do is like go outside and shoot hoops with a kid or go shopping with a kid or just be with a kid. And if you're on your phone during all those open spaces, well then a kid's not going to feel safe to share what's going on. So I think the first thing as a parent is like, holy shit, it's really freaking hard to be a kid right now. And I need to make sure that I'm available to my kid and not just physically, but mentally as well. And then the second story that I'll share is, um, is, is like the adults driving this dumb is shit political discourse around sexuality. And I come back to sexuality because the numbers are, stark and undeniable that this is by far the worst for LGBTQ kids. The survey doesn't include people that identify as transgender, but it's probably safe to assume that they face the, the same kind of um, the same kind of increased risk. And you have a bunch of adults acting like that's the existential crisis when kids don't give a shit. My son recently had his first encounter with someone that identifies as they. And when my son asked, I simply said, oh, yeah, they were born with a pecker. That's what he calls a penis. They were born with a pecker, but now they really like dressing like a girl. And because they don't really love all the things that boys do and they don't just love all the things that girls do, they, they call themselves they. And they have a pecker and they like dressing like a girl. And you know what my four-and-a-half-year-old son said, Steve? He said, great. And then he called this person they, and that's it. Over. Done. Like... The adults are the ones fucking this up. So this is a, yeah, this is a complicated uh, topic. And I think on most things, adults screw things up. Um, that's like a clear trend on most things. Kids kind of adapt and go with things. I think, I think it gets, but to me, I think it gets back to the like identity piece, which is why does, and I think this is like, again, I'm not painting all sides, but like, when we overattach to just about anything, it makes our alarms hypersensitive. Mm -hmm. So what we've got here is we over on one side we've like overattached like crazy towards like oh this is an existential threat when it's just like who gives a shit. Um, but on the other side, I think it's also a little of like who gives a shit? Like do whatever you want. 
but I just think it's like this problem that's that's gone so far past like it's maybe deserved amplification. It's one of those like social media amplified issues. <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. And it gets back to like what you said at the outset, which is just like it's just attention economy. And if the culture war wasn't the thing that was going to get the most attention, then they'd move on to something else that was. Um, and I would argue that like they'd be forced to actually make policies instead of just yell back and forth about stuff that they're never going to actually change, but just like riles up people. People but, that potentially vote. But I also don't, and I know I was the one that brought this up, I don't want to just over-index on like the culture war and politics because I think there, there's all these other factors which perhaps are even more important, which is just like the constant comparison, the nonstop social media, the saturation with existential distress. And we know that anxiety that is not coped with for, when you experience anxiety for a long period of time and you do not have the proper ways to integrate or cope with it, eventually anxiety almost always turns into depression because the fight or flight system can only be in flight fight mode for so long before it just shuts down and that's when you get depression. And, and I think the the comparison is something we touched on, but I think it's even more important than that because it ties into the identity piece, which is like, you know, I think back to middle school kind of sucks for everybody. And why does it suck for everybody? Because you're you feel lost and insignificant. You're the middle schooler who goes from elementary school where you get stuck in your classroom and you make friends and it's not that big deal for most. You get stuck in middle school, you get thrown into the lunchroom and you got to find a table to sit at <laughs> in a group yeah. where you belong. And it it's really sucks for a lot of people, a lot of kids. Well, I think we've what we've done is amplified that to a hundred times yep. because like we feel lost. And I actually think Again, I'm not trying to be controversial, but a lot of what we just what what we've talked about around the identity piece, even tying in, you know, how did pronouns kind of take the the sense that we've got them to? Well, it's because people are kind of lacking significance, and this is one way to make them feel significant, seen, heard, etc. We can argue on the value or in value of that, but like that's part of the symptom. And I and I think that part of well, why do we have so much like we'll call it identity anxiety around things? Well, it's because instead of navigating your middle school lunchroom filled with sixty or a hundred kids or whatever, we've got a global world where it's you're navigating your childhood, teenage years compared to just about everybody in the world and compared to everybody in the world, of course you're going to feel like you're insignificant, don't belong, can't measure up, have no hope for making it in life or making a dent or whatever have you. So you feel anxious and depressed. Yeah. And I, and I want to come back to the pronoun thing because I think that that's largely smoke and mirrors. I think that like stating one's pronouns so that you can be called based on the gender that you identify with. Again, it's not a big deal. I've seen it done well in different settings. It's only a big deal when people make it a big deal. Um, 
Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, so I want to be clear here because I think this is important. I think it's why do you ask? Like, why has this risen and in, in like become a thing? And I think it's it's partially because, again, like why has it has it risen? It's like cultural as well. But I think it's partially because like there's the identity piece where it's like okay. I identify in a different, you know, sex, whatever have you. So I'm going to have like, this is important part and piece of who I am. So I'm going to broadcast that, which is understandable to a degree. But yeah, but, and, and I think that's, that's like it, to me, it comes back to like this need to feel seen, belonged, like where my sense of self is acknowledged. Yeah, I think there I'm going to disagree halfway. I think that if you are somebody who has like bad body dysmorphia or feels like you're stuck in the wrong body or really identifies with a gender that's separate from your sex, I think that being misgendered all the time would suck. And I think that's why you'd want to say, hey, my pronouns, it's like if my pronouns were were she, her, or they, I'd want to say that. So people call me that. I think where there's maybe a sense of identity latching on is where someone that doesn't experience those things wants to like shift their pronouns or go by maybe like he, they, or she, they, not because they truly feel like they're gender fluid, but because they want to like identify with this like progressive, what they perceive as a progressive movement. Um, That to me, I think is a little bit more of the issue. And I come back to these kids. I still don't think that's really what's driving the problem for these kids. So, I mean, I agree to some extent. I think maybe I just see it through a slightly different lens on the, like, I just think this is so, gosh, we're going to go all controversial here. But if if you take it it into sport, right, on the, the trans issue in sport, like, there's a real push to compete under the, the sex you identify with, regardless of the athletic advantage or fairness issue. Why? Because, like, a sense of, belonging and identifying with this group. Yeah, I think it's a podcast for another time. I think sport is very separate than this and comes with its own can of worms. Okay, we'll table this one for Because I think when you talk about sport, you're talking about like sex making an enormous difference in performance. And I think the division in sport needs to be based on sex, not gender for that very reason. Yes. And we've talked about this a little, but we can table that. I I think that broadly speaking, I, I just want to come back to what you said about like the nonstop existential risk. And then maybe in the last few minutes, we've talked a lot about the problem, about how terrible it is. What to do about it, I think, is kind of twofold, right? If you think of it as an engineering problem, on the one hand, you try to remove the causes of the problem. So the extreme would be, and this is something I think about all the time, you can't just take your own kid's phone away because then everyone else will have a phone and your kid will feel left out. So like you got to run for school board and make a huge stink and be like the single issue candidate who says we need like a district wide policy on no social media through X amount of time. And you just try to rip that shit away from your kid and create the good old days where they're friends with their in-person friends in their neighborhood. And then at the other extreme, you say, nope, this technology is here to stay. If it's not in 10th grade, it's going to be in 11th grade. So we need to teach our kids how to cope with it and how to use it appropriately. 
And then maybe there's a third thing, which is just like, we need more stringent regulations on social media and, or like somehow the adults need to change the culture, realizing that, well, we're having our piss fits and making tons of money and capturing people's attention. We're leaving a generation with like severe detriment to their mental health. And it's probably a combination of all three. I freaking hate the idea of running for school board. It sounds like a nightmare. It sounds like harder work than I want to do. It sounds like the worst kind of petty bullshit local politics. And more and more, I'm having this thought of like, I need to quickly write my best books and make some money, hopefully selling those books so that when my son is 10, 11, 12, I can just run for school board. And even if I lose, make like the biggest stink around this issue Because I do think ultimately the schools are going to have to do something about mental health because you can't, you can't just treat it as one by one. This is a public health problem and we might not have the perfect data, but I think you have to start somewhere. And there's this saying in, in medicine where like, don't go zebra hunting. Like if it looks like a horse and if it acts like a horse, it's probably not a zebra, it's probably a horse. And I think to me, there's enough evidence that social media and how kids use it is a driving force behind all of this. Not the only thing. And I'm not saying it should be banned, but I'm saying that it shouldn't just be left up to the inertia of the world. There should be some kind of thoughtful A-B testing policy decisions made on that. Yeah, the other things that I would say as solutions are um, getting more local, which you kind yeah. of touched on. Um, you know, one of the thoughts that I had is, We've had a decline in like organized religion. And I don't think organized religion plays a role in the way we traditionally think of it, but I think it plays in a role in the sense that that takes away probably one of the routes that we had organized local community um, that adults and kids don't have anymore. So I think we need something and religion could fill that gap for something, some people, but like something to fill that gap of organized local community where we get away from the kind of national global world and can kind of see meaning, purpose, belonging on a local level. And then the other thing that I think is really important is um, we've kind of taken away outlets for kids to play, explore, fail, succeed um, without parental involvement. So I think we need to like figure out ways how to bring back, I'll just call it the Sandlot baseball effect, which is how do you allow kids to struggle, play, argue, get in many fights with others without parents, you know, safetyism over the top. Yep. Um, and I think those are, th- because if that is where you develop that kind of robust skills and coping mechanisms and styles to figure out conflict is through this kind of play without parent to swoop in. Yep. And then the last thing I'll say before we wrap up is um, we talked a lot about social media. And while Steve and I are both on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn, so it's like, are we being hypocrites? And here I want to defend ourselves a little. One, we're adults. We're not kids. Our prefrontal cortices are developed. Two, if you look at our social media, you do not see perfect pictures 
of my muscles, even though they're not so perfect. You don't see Steve running a four-minute mile. You don't see our kids. You don't see our partners. You don't see any of that comparison bullshit. And I know I'm offending people that do it, so I'm sorry, but stay with me. I think it's really important to kind of model, what are we doing? We're sharing information. That's it. Because the minute you get into that status game, you can't get out of it. And you might think that you're impervious to it, but you're not. So I feel so strongly, and again, I know this might, this might rub some people the wrong way, that if you want to share pictures of your family with your friends, then get a freaking group text message with your friends and share those pictures. Steve gets all the pictures of me lifting weights and all the pictures of my German Shepherd. Why? Because Steve's my actual friend. The minute that you start broadcasting that stuff, you're just normalizing the global comparison status game. And if it irks you as an adult, which, come on, let's be real, it does irk all of us. Even if you post that stuff, I know that you don't actually like it. Imagine how it feels to a 13-year-old girl. So what example are you setting? Got to be careful. Status and external validation are a hell of a drug. And I think, and and to sum that up, I think so much of our current uh, environment is set up to pull us that way. So you have to be very intentional to make sure that you don't get pulled that way. And it's not just willpower, it's setting up your environment, your uses, etc. And I think that explains kind of a lot of this is if adults struggle with this and we've got you know, functional prefrontal cortex is developed, all that stuff, then our yeah, kids it's like keep, are kind keep, of... Consider what it would look like to keep more of your life private. Yeah. And by private, I mean to a local community. It's like tying these things together as an adult. Yes, exactly. It, and it also, the other thing I'd, I'd say on this as well is like in our local community, often we can have more of an impact and feel like we can control stuff which decreases that ex- existential threat, right? Because we stop freaking out over whatever the big national global thing is and like focus on our kind of little world, which we can have an impact on. Yep. So when things are big and complex and unwieldy and angry, go small and local, ask yourself, and I really don't mean to like offend people because different people have different values, but just ask yourself, like, is posting or is is oversharing or sharing a lot of like personal stuff. You really feel good doing that or no? And if the answer is yes, then great, keep doing it. But if the answer is no, then just stop. You don't have to do that. You know, that's what that's what group texts are for. Um because that's the example that you're then setting for your kid. And I know if I want if I want my kid to be unhappy, I'm going to tell my kid to like post pictures of himself for the whole world to judge and then start looking at his life as a way to score points on the social media game. And guess what happens when you don't score good points? You start to feel like shit. So it's worth keeping some of your life that's not the social media point game. You know, if you want to score points, play basketball or chess. Yes. Because it's a game. It's all right. And social media like commoditizes identity. And when you lose a game, it sucks. But when the game is you as a person and your status and you forget that it's a game, well, that's a quick, quick path to anxiety and then depression. Yep. All right. Well, with that, 
appreciate y'all coming along for this ride. Again, we, we appreciate you taking this conversation in good faith. We're talking about really challenging topics. Um, if you've got teenage kids, hug them, kiss them, ask them how they're doing, but equally important, all the research shows, like just create some space, just open space where you're with them. You're not on your phone. You're not distracted uh, and support them because it's really, really a challenging time to, to be a kid right now. And if your kids identify as LGBTQ, um, even more so provide that, that love and support. And if you've gotten caught up in the culture war on either side, like, you know, ask yourself if it's worth it because the, the suffering and damage that's being left in its wake is pretty freaking significant. Mm-hmm.